One word that gets thrown around a lot these days in uh, business culture is the word granular. Have you all ever heard that word before used? Granular. Kendall's shaking his head. Like all the business people use the word granular. And what granular means really is, is getting to the details, uh, being willing and ready to look at the data and to break things up to see them in smaller chunks. So the granular approach is not just to see a business or an organization as a thing, but to see it as a bunch of little things, a, a bunch of interworking parts, to examine how all those parts work together and the data that they produce, and to determine looking at, on a very uh, granular level, they would say, whether the business is healthy. In other words, instead of looking at the beach, you get a microscope out and you look at the grains. You look at the grains of sand that make up the beach. Well, in our study of Colossians, Paul has taken, he's began with us looking at the beach. He's began taking a very high view of, of the Christian life. And so he's painted a big picture for us so far in our study, looking at chapters 1 and especially chapter 2, of the infinite God, of the comprehensive fullness of Jesus and our fullness in Him. But when we start working down into chapter 3, Paul starts to get super practical and granular. And we start to see that the Christian life is really lived at the grain of sand level and not the beach level. Okay? That's maybe my thesis for today. This is the key, I will tell you, to your spiritual life. You'll miss the point of the Christian life. The Christian life is not, uh, it's not a, a ride in a jet plane. It's a walk. And there is a major difference between a walk and a ride in a jet plane. Many people want to live their life spiritually from high to high to high to experience to experience to experience. And so what we do is we tend to look forward to Sundays. We focus on meetings. I was talking to a man this week was telling me that his church was getting a new pastor. Everybody at the church is very excited. He said, well, we're hoping he's going to bring the Spirit a little more. And I thought, man, I, I, you know, that's a problem when people think that the, it's up to the pastor to bring the Spirit. He's just a sinner like everybody else, right? How do we bring the Spirit a little bit more? You know, the focus can't be on meetings. Imagine if you went to a football game and your team never broke the huddle. Imagine if you went to a football game and they never ran a play. What if they just ran back and forth from the sideline to the huddle, from the sideline to the huddle, and the other team was just standing there? <laughs> what are you guys doing? I've heard church compared to a huddle. Now, certainly church is more than that. But if the way you experience the Holy Spirit most is just when we sing together, you're missing the point of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the helper, not to help you sing. The Holy Spirit is the assister, the companion, not to help you stay on key, but to help you live the Christian life from Monday to Saturday. Now we could say we live uh, Sunday to Sunday to Sunday to Sunday. I'm saying let's not do that. But what if every day was Sunday? What if our whole life is just a series of Sundays because what is Sunday called? The Lord's Day. What if we woke up and every single day was the Lord's day? 
You don't need the Holy Spirit to sing, but you do need the Holy Spirit to keep believing when you get bad news. When your baby is sick, when you're exhausted and you can't keep going, when your boss or a friend has just jumped right all over you, we need the Holy Spirit in the little moments that make up the Christian life. We come here to sing and to pray and to hear the Word because we know we have to leave here and run the play. And when we walk in the Spirit all week and we're growing and we're seeing God working in our lives in the most basic things mundane things. You don't need a preacher. If people are living for Jesus, if a church walks out of here and says, let's live for Christ. Holy Spirit, help me every day to be obedient and to walk with Jesus and to follow him and to be a disciple and to grow. If you have a church full of people doing that, you don't need the preacher or the band to bring the Spirit. Music we talked about last week is very powerful. We can use music to manipulate people's emotions. We can use music to make people kind of sometimes to to create something artificial. And sometimes we have to do that. People go to churches and there's light shows and there's smoke and there's screens and there's all this stuff that just grabs our attention and it hypes us up. But the reality, that's not the Christian life. The Christian life is what happens when you leave. What happens when you're tired? What happens when you get the bad news? It's easy to get excited about the few hours we spend here together each Sunday. And it is crucial. We have to come here and get in the huddle. Imagine trying to live the life if you didn't have the huddle. But the Christian life is is not just a series of Sundays. It's a series of minutes. Life is a series of seconds. It's those moments of the mundane not the majestic, where we truly see God and experience holy, uh, uh, fellowship with the Holy Spirit. So our passage today, when you look at Colossians chapter 3, when we get to verse 18, what this is called is a household code. Now, Paul was not the only person that wrote household codes. I don't know how many times I'm going to be able to say household co- code. I, can't, I couldn't do it. I was like, wow, you got that out twice in a row. It's hard to say household code uh, fast three times. But these codes are written, they were written all over the ancient world. These would be sort of things people would write down and maybe put on the wall so people would understand, here's where you are in life and here's what is expected of you. Here's a word to the wife. Here's a word to the husband. Here's a word to the children. Here's a word to the servant. Here's a word to the master. Paul writes these things, they're common. But here's the deal. The Christian codes are a lot different than the codes of the world. We read these codes, and we, are, we're, we have to sort of translate ourselves back to the first century, and that's what the preacher does. I've told you this before. We're standing here in 2023. I've got one foot in 2023. I got one foot in the first century, and we're standing between two different worlds, and we kind of have to translate back and forth, don't we, to find the application and to understand the meaning of the passage. So, yes, we're going to see things here and read words here. And Christy Simmons said she was sitting by Callie last week and she uh, said, wow, look, look where Chad's going to have to preach next week. (laughs) Wives, submit to your husbands, you know, and I said, yeah, I hope everybody brought their tomatoes uh, to throw at the preacher. Hey, that's, these words, they sound so foreign in our culture of 2023, all right, but 
These are, these, this is the way God would have us to live. When we talk about slavery, obviously, and thank the Lord, we don't live in a country anymore where chattel slavery, which was sinful, is considered normal. But we read these passages and we have to, as we stand between the two worlds, see where the application is, see where the gospel is, see where the meaning is, and understand that we're being given some instructions here on how to live on the most basic level. So this is getting into the weeds. This is getting granular. We're talking about the basic moment by moment, minute by minute, chunks of your life where you're really going to see God showing up. And the first place he goes to here is the home. Isn't that interesting? The home. Sadly, uh, when we think of the most mundane moments, in these most mundane moments, it's the easiest for us to become spiritually complacent. What I'm arguing for you today is to take those most mundane moments when you think nothing's happening and give those to Christ. If that's where our Christianity, that's where the rubber's going to hit the road and we're really going to see God. If we're all just expecting the highs of Sunday morning, we're going to miss what God is really doing in our life. Because he doesn't say, okay, here it is, guys. When you come to church on Sunday mornings, you need a really good LED light show. And you need really loud guitars and drums and a screen and you need smoke. And if you don't have a good enough fog machine, your lights won't look good. No, he doesn't say that. He goes right to husbands and wives and children, doesn't he? Goes right to the home. So Paul writes these words to people. He's showing them how the grandeur works out in the granular. He's moving From the cosmic to the kitchen sink. From the glories of the universe to the folding of underwear. (laughs) Which is where we experience the living God in those just those ordinary moments of life. Can you imagine seeing the Lord revealed and working in your heart in just the ordinariness of life? I was reading Zephaniah the other day. And that sounds like a really preacherly thing to say, right? I was reading Zephaniah the other day. Well, why? I, I don't normally sit around and read Zephaniah, but I had a list of the books I'm planning to preach over the next 10 years, and I had Zephaniah crossed out. I, did, I thought, why, why did I cross that out? And I think I crossed it out because it's a lot like Joel, but I, I, so I said, reading Zephaniah, so I want to read the book. If I crossed it out, that's probably bad. So I got, so I got the Bible out and started reading it. And listen to what it says in Zephaniah chapter 1 and verse 12. It's talking about the day of the Lord. He says, at that time of the day of the Lord, I will search Jerusalem with lamps. Here's God's city where God's people live, and God's going to go search it with lamps. And I will punish the men who are complacent. I will punish the men who are complacent, who say in their hearts, the Lord will not do good, nor will he do ill. What is complacency? How do we become spiritually complacent? This verse jumped out at me and slapped me in the face because I think sometimes we go through parts of our life and we think God doesn't care anything about this moment. He doesn't care anything about this thought. He doesn't care anything about this conversation or this activity. What does it mean in the life of a believer if we would start to think that God doesn't care about something? It doesn't matter if I do this or say this or think this or that. God doesn't care. What happens when we start thinking that way? Marriages fall apart. Children suffer. Work suffers. We stop praying. We stop being thankful. We don't care about others. We just focus on ourselves. And the mundane, where we're supposed to see the Lord working, 
the mundane where the true joy of the Lord is becomes misery. So what's the answer? The answer is back at the beginning of chapter 3. Stay focused on the heavenly things. Keep your mind seeking and setting on the things above, which represents the rule and the reign of Christ. In those mundane moments, what do we say? Lord, be the Lord over this moment while I'm folding laundry. While I'm doing the dishes, let me do the dishes to the glory of God. Because what happens if you don't do that? You start to resent all the people that made those dirty dishes. And then they didn't even bother to put them in the sink. And then they didn't even bother to run water in it. So now it's all crusty and you got to work at it with a tool, right? That's how life works, isn't it? Lord, let me wash these dishes that I might serve my family. And that I might love you as I do that. You see, thank you that I've got dishes to wash. A Christian is called to live a life day to day, moment by moment, second by second. I'm telling you this because I'm telling myself this, or I'm not telling you I've got this mastered. I'm just telling you I read the Bible this week. A Christian is called to live a life day to day that is consistent with the shape and the message of the gospel. So our lives, I mean, here's a question. Does your life make it easier or harder to share the gospel? If someone came to you and wanted to know the gospel, is your life and the way you live and your attitudes and your words and your speech, is it a barrier to you sharing the gospel? Or does it make it conducive? Are people, are people seeing, hey, I, I don't understand how you responded to this news or to this whatever that just had this circumstance in your life. And you could say, I don't understand it either except that God is good. Let me tell you what he's done. He gets down to the granular level there in verse 18. Wives, submit to your husband as is fitting in the Lord. There's a command to the wives to submit as is fitting. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. And normally when you come to those verses about the submitting and all that, you feel like you have to say all these things. Here's, here's uh, what I'm going to say. God's word commands that the husband is the captain. And we always realize that submission has boundaries. It must be fitting in the Lord. We obey God rather than man. If your husband's asking you to do something immoral or illegal, of course you don't obey that command. But if you've just married an idiot, that was your fault. If he tells you to do something that maybe you've got some questions about, okay, he's the captain. If it's not immoral or illegal, uh, let him lead. And then if you're a smart husband, my, my, and you, most of us know that our wives are a lot smarter than we are. So the smart captain, you know what the smart captain does? He knows he's the captain, but then he goes to, to, the, to the other players on the team and he says, what do you guys think? That's the way it works, doesn't it? So here's the way a marriage is supposed to work. It's not supposed to be one guy being the ruler over everything. He's the captain. And so what the captain does is he tries to get agreement. He tries to get everybody on the same page. Here's what I think we need to do. I don't know about that. Well, let's think about it. Let's look at this. Let's, let's get some more information. This is the way you're thoughtful. This is the way you don't. This is the way you're not harsh with your wife, is you listen to her. You don't act like you're the man. And that whatever you say is right, whatever you say is goes, because you're probably not that smart. And you probably need a lot of encouragement, and you probably need a, need a lot of wisdom and knowledge. So what you do is, is you listen to your wife, 
And then when it comes to the point where you just can't agree on something and you've worked hard to try to figure it out and to agree, what are you going to do? Somebody has to make the decision. The Bible says the man is the captain and he's going to have to make that decision and he's going to be responsible for his decisions. It's, it, the responsibility falls to him, the accountability before God falls to him. So remember, before you just run out there and just try to make all these decisions and think you're the man, uh, you're going to answer to God for your decisions. That's a sobering thought. And it's interesting here. Does he tell, in verse 18, does he tell husbands to make their wives submit? No. So the husband can't say, well, I'm trying to get her to submit. That's not your problem. The, The command from God is for her to submit. It's not for you to make her submit. If she doesn't submit, you still have to love her and not be harsh with her. Now, these are hard verses, understand. Marriage is really hard, isn't it? And so what we want to try to do is talk and get on the same page and, and love our wives and not be harsh and respectfully submit to our husband's leadership. And, his, and so the way I always said this, kind of the Ephesians 5 way, that if the husband is giving up his life for his wife and she's respecting him, it just gets us closer to the Lord, right? And whenever two, when a husband and wife were climbing the mountain, if we're both seeking after God, we're usually going to be pretty like-minded because we're going to develop among ourselves the mind of Christ. I know it's very complicated. There's not, you can't say everything that there is to say about how husbands and wives should, should uh, work together, but Paul does it a lot with a lot fewer words than I just did it, doesn't he? <laughs> wives, submit your husbands as fitting in the Lord. That's a good enough caveat. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Don't be stupid, guys. You've got this great responsibility. And what you're doing there uh, is you are, in the way that you love your wife, and wife, in the way that you love your husband, what Paul says is it's more than just marriage that we're talking about when we look at a marriage. In Ephesians chapter 5, he says the relationship between the husband and wife is a picture of Christ giving himself for the church. It's a picture of Christ dying for the church and the church submitting to Christ who gave himself for her, who loved her. It's just giving our lives away, isn't it? That's what we're called to do as believers in Jesus Christ. When the kids went to Germany on the mission trip, I didn't go. And I felt like that was something Adelaide and Sawyer needed to do without us when your dad's the preacher, the preacher's always around. And so I think it was good for them to go over there and it was exciting to hear what they were doing. We want to live that kind of mission trip Christianity sometimes, don't we? They want to do great things for God. But you know what? A week later, they were back in Olney. And they had great stories, and I know that their life was impacted forever. But I remember that when they came back, and even while they were gone, you know, holding the foster baby. And at one point, I remember looking at the foster baby, and I said, well, you're my mission trip. (laughs) You're my mission trip. And, and, and that's, an, that's, that's a harder mission trip to take, isn't it? The hard mission trips to take are the ones that, that go 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 a year. But that's the mission trip that you've been assigned. That's the mission trip you've taken when you said, I do. It is a mission trip that never ends until one of you dies. That's, a mission, that's the real mission trip right there. It's the same thing with your parenting. And even when we think of Team Kid, 
And we come up here year after year, every Wednesday night, and those kids never behave. And you think, well, maybe this next group coming up will behave. But by the time they hit that grade, they're not behaving either. That's the mission trip. And we stay with it, and we stay with it, and we stay with it. You want to go on a mission trip? You want to do something big for the Lord? We all want to do something big for the Lord. I'm assuming that if you came to church today, you didn't come because you don't love Jesus and you don't want to serve him. I'm assuming that the reason you're here is that you at least want to know, what would life look like if I was serving God? Here's what it looks like. Doing something big for the Lord. Just love your wife. Get up and help her for a minute. Try a little tenderness. Stop being such a jerk. Stop acting childish and be a Christian man. Help her get your kids ready for church. I say that, but I'm, I'm gone by the time that happens. But I would help if I was there. I hope. Put down the video game controller. Put down the hunting rifle. Go to bed earlier. Do whatever you need to do. Because you're going to wish you'd done different. You're going to wish you'd done different. When we got the baby and had had the baby... Um, so, you know, we have, a, we have an 18-year-old, a 15-year-old, an 11-year-old, and then now in the house we have a 2-year-old. So it had been 10 years since I'd changed a diaper. And I'm not even sure I was changing diapers 10 years ago. That's kind of the point of my story. So I tried, when we got the baby, to be much, I was, I was more intentional. All right, she's got a poopy diaper, let's change it. Can I help pour the milk into the bottle? Can I do something here? And Melissa or somebody remarks at some point, wow, you know, you're, you're so much better as a dad right now than you were 10 years ago. And I thought, I, I, and I had to own that one, you know. This is what I should have been doing 10 years ago. I'm thankful for Torvi because she's given me a chance to, to do it right, to be more involved. I wish I had done different 10 years ago. I wish there had been some preacher that got in my face when I had a little baby and said, Get up and help. Don't just let mom do all the work. There's some way you can help her. And that's being tender. And that's loving your wife. That's giving your life for the... And if you'll do that, it makes it a lot easier for them to say, what do you think we should do, hon? What are we going to do? That's the tenderness. That's the way the marriage works when both people are laying down their lives for Christ and for one another. Next, children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Uh, God has given parents to you. Uh, all the children, look at me. Look up. Quit drawing and look at me. I'm going to tell you something you can remember. <clears throat> if you are a child, if you're living in your parents' home, look at me. Everybody looking at me? Raise your hand if you're looking at me. Or as Mr. Burns just says, if you can hear me, clap once. <laughs> Is that how you do it? Is that the way you do it? If you can hear me, clap once. You can hear me, clap twice. He, does, he gets their attention. All right, Listen. In a sense, here's what God has done. He's put you in the home. You can't see God, but you can see mom and dad, can't you? And he's given them the responsibility for your life. And so when they tell you to do something, as long as they're not asking you to do something immoral, as long as they're not asking you to do something illegal, because we obey God rather than man, but when they tell you to do something, even when you don't like it, what do you need to do? Obey. Because when you obey your parents, you're obeying God. Because he's put them as the authority in your life. And we can take that out to all authority. When God's put authority in our life, because he said obey authority, when you obey the authority, you're obeying God. That's a wonderful way God set it up. We can't see God, but I can see mom and dad. I can see the police officer. I can see my Sunday school teacher. I can see the authorities in my life. 
I know they love me and want God's best for me, so I need to listen to them and be teachable when they come to me and, t- and tell me what to do. I need to be obedient to them as unto the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Oh, how many of you guys feel that? That hurts, doesn't it? Fathers, don't provoke your children. So here's what I do. Every time I'm around a baby, every time I was around Sawyer or Emerald or Adelaide or Torby, every time I'm around a baby, you know what I do? They're like, stop it, stop it. Okay, that's not what he's talking about here, even though I'm going to try to quit doing that so much. Sawyer's getting tired of it. <laughs> Get out of my face. Hey, there's a fine line as a dad between trying to, to show your child the potential they have. Okay, you're trying to guide them, you're trying to show, and then provoking them and discouraging them. Okay, we sometimes get up to that line and we cross it, don't we? Because we're harsh with our tone. We're discouraging in our tone because we want, we see what the child could be. We know how we need to prepare this child to be. It's like in my house, Sawyer gets up on Saturday mornings, we start doing housework, and then somebody says, why does Sawyer have to do the work? Why is everybody else just hanging around out in the house? It's because he's a man and he's got to learn, all right? And, but one of the things about being the man who's learning is when we're, when we take a break, we're going to go down and go get us some hamburgers. Why does everybody else get it? Why does he get a hamburger and everybody else has to eat sandwiches? Because he's a man and he worked in the yard all day long, right? There's, it, it works both ways. But I was, I remember when he was a little boy and we're in the office and there was one of our uh, senior citizens that was in there sitting in the office. And I said something to Sawyer. I, I jumped on him. He was acting out of line. I jumped on him. And uh, this older man, he looked at me and said, hey, he's okay. Don't do that. Don't jump on him. And I thought, okay. He said, I've been down that road. I've been down there. You're going to discourage him. Just love him. Be patient with him. And so I, I've tried to remember that moment where I was rebuked gently by someone who said, hey, you're going to wish you hadn't been like that. And I can feel the same way in my own heart when I think I wish I'd have been more attentive when these kids are babies. How long are these kids babies? How long does that phase last? It's gone like that, isn't it? Then we just wish we could have it back. And then they move off to college and they never even call you. You know, we, 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 uh, you know, Adelaide had looked at a college in California in Los Angeles. And Melissa makes the, and Adelaide, if you're listening, I love you. Uh, but, <laughs> but she's probably not even listening. And so, uh, you know, Melissa made the observation yesterday. She's like, you know, we, we would probably have seen her more if she'd actually gone to California and not to Texas A&M because that school in California didn't even have a football team. Uh, and so she doesn't miss any of the football games at Texas A&M. But, you know, we think back to the time that we have with these little ones, and it goes by so quickly. So let's, let's love our children. Let's not provoke them. Let's not discourage them. But let's encourage them. And the best way to do that, because here's what dads do. This is why Paul, he doesn't say anything to the moms, but he says it to the dads. Because we have to remember this. Here's what happens. The mom, she's down there on that granular level with the kids. She's giving them milk money. She's making them a lunch every single day. She's filling out the form to say that they need to get their pictures. And we want five eight by tens, and, or maybe that's too many eight by tens. See, I don't even know how to order pictures. I don't do that. <laughs> but the mom's doing all this stuff. She's in the details. She's figuring out what PJs everybody's going to wear on Christmas Eve, you know? And you're just walking around in your underwear. Like the mom is, 
the mom is getting down into the weeds. And then there comes a problem. And what, was dad, what does dad do? Dad comes in and he's going to sort it all out right there. And he, and he comes in and says, here's how it's going to be. And here's what you're going to do. And this, 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 this. Those kids look at him and say, who do you think you are? <laughs> now, they don't say that out loud. But that's what they think, isn't it? Oh, you, you don't even talk to me. And now you come in here and try to tell me how it's going to be. So the best way, if we don't want to discourage our kids and we don't want to provoke them, you got to talk, guys, you got to talk to your children. They've got to feel like they can come to you and talk about whatever they need to talk about. You've got to keep that line of communication open. And we, we joke about it now. I think things have actually gotten better. Some of you guys that are older, y'all aren't going to believe this, but in 2023, when your kid has a birthday party, you have to go. Now, some of you guys are shocked. And we look up to you guys and we think, what was that like when you didn't have to worry about any of that stuff? Now we have to worry about, but it's good because our kids feel like that we're experiencing things in their life with them. And maybe that's been a good thing, a way that the culture has changed. It's because we see that the dad who's absent, the dad that thinks I'm just the breadwinner, and I'm going to go make the money, and then I'm going to give you the money, I'm going to do whatever I want, go to happy hour, go play golf on Sunday, blah, 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 blah. That doesn't work, does it? And you're missing out. You're missing out on what God is doing in your life. And so, there's a message here to the fathers. Don't provoke them. Encourage them. Be involved in their life. Adelaide and I have been arguing since she was three years old. And we argue really hard. Um... And I can tell when I start provoking, I can tell when I'm being unfair. And usually what happens is whenever we're acting that way, we, we both laugh. We start to laugh and talk about how ridiculous we're being in our argument. And then many times, because of something I've said to Adelaide or something I've said to Emerald or something I've said to Sawyer, you know what I've had to do? You want, you want to not exasperate your children? You want to encourage your children, dads? When you mess up, go tell them you're sorry. You know what that means to a kid? First off, it's awkward and uncomfortable to have your, your dad come in and tell you that he messed up because we don't want our dads to mess up. But our dads come in and tell us, I'm a human being, I'm a sinner, I need Jesus. And Jesus has forgiven me of my sins, but I've offended you. Will you forgive me for, for, for my sin against you? And man, that's powerful, isn't it? There's nothing more powerful than a man who's willing to admit that he made a mistake. Because that's a man who's following Christ, who's, who's willing to say, I, am, I don't have it all together. I'm leaning on the everlasting arms just like everybody else needs to. So be sensitive to that fact as fathers. Don't crush your children's spirit. And it hurts you to hear that. It hurts me to say it because we've all been right at that line, haven't we? Let's use this verse to remind us, be tender with them. Don't provoke them, but encourage them. Next, he goes to bond servants. Okay, slavery in the first century is different than slavery in the 1860s in America. It wasn't based on your race. It was based on your, kind of like, was your, was your country conquered? Did you know that in the Roman uh, Empire in the first century, between 20 and 30% at any given time of a community, 20 and 30% of that community was a slave. And these people would be doctors and teachers and businessmen and merchants, and they would be slaves. And so it was a huge part of the culture. Now, we look at that and we say, well, why didn't Paul tell them to fight slavery? It's interesting the way God did this. Paul did not advocate for a big slave revolt. What would happen to all the slaves if there was a slave revolt? You're either going to be killed, 
crucified, hung, impaled, or maybe if they had mercy on you, they would brand your forehead with a, with a big uh, F for being a fugitive, fugitivist. Uh, your life was going to get a lot worse if you revolted against the system. But what happened over time? What's always happened over time in any, civil, in any uh, civilization, in any, any society or culture that has accepted Jesus Christ, what's happened to slavery in that culture? Goes away. Because you can't love God and you can't believe the Bible and persist in slavery. Because it's a sin. It's a sin to kidnap people. It's a sin to steal people. Man stealing is a sin. And so is stealing people's labor. Those are sins. So you can't, you, you, eventually somebody wakes up and says, whoa, we can't do this anymore. This is wrong. These people are creating the image of God just like we are. We can't do this. And that's happened in every single culture. And Christianity has led the abolition of slavery in the world. And there, uh, incidentally, is a lot of sex trafficking and other types of slavery that are going on in the world right now. And the answer to that, what's going to end that is not government crackdowns. It's going to be Christ. Okay. Because that's the only thing that's ever seemed to stamp it out has been people loving Jesus and, getting, and, and obeying his word. Bond servants, obey in everything those who are, who are your earthly masters. Not by way of eye service. I'm running out of time. I'm going to go a little quicker here. Not by way of eye service uh, as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, and this is good for all of us, to think about in our employment, whatever you do, wherever you go to work tomorrow, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Think, what would your job be like if that was the attitude you took to your job? I'm not just here to make money, I'm here to, to serve Jesus, you know. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he's done, and there is no partiality. And then uh, they, the, the bad chapter break here, then verse 1 of chapter 4, Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you have a master in heaven. Well, we are all to have a servant's heart. How do you know if you have a servant's heart? One man said it this way. He said, you know you have a servant's heart, and it will be revealed whether or not you have a servant's heart, when you're treated like a servant? How do we act when someone treats us like we're beneath them? That will reveal a lot about whether or not we have a servant's heart. Now this verse, you'll remember, the basketball coach at Texas Tech was using this passage as an illustration while he was coaching basketball. A white guy coaching African-American guys probably doesn't need to use this passage. It wound up getting him fired. And you have to be careful talking about slavery because of the history of slavery in this country. And we talked about why it was wrong. But the application here, I think the application is not just how are you going to act at work. I think the application for us is we sometimes find ourselves in a situation that is unjust, a circumstance that is unfair. And when things aren't fair, what do you need to remember? The Lord sees, the Lord rewards, the Lord repays. Paul is reminding the mistreated slave that one day all the wrongs will be righted. And the masters are being told the same thing. One day there will be ultimate justice. Christian master, you better think about how you treat your slaves. That's the gospel connection here in the passage. There will be justice one day. Every sin will be punished. God is not going to let any wrongdoing pass. Every believer that suffers for the sake of Christ will be rewarded. 
Every sin will be punished. Every, every suffering for the sake of Christ will be rewarded. So be reminded that every wrong you have done, everything you have ever done that has been offensive and sinful to God will be punished. It will either be punished, considered to be punished on the cross, or you will pay for the punishment yourself in hell. So the invitation is here. Turn to Jesus for forgiveness. Turn to Jesus for salvation. Turn from your sins and turn to Christ and follow Him and live for Jesus, serving God, loving others in the most basic areas of life. Look at chapter 4, verse 2. Given some more mundane, ordinary ways to walk through our lives. Continue every single day, every single hour, every single moment. Pray without ceasing. Continue steadfastly in prayer and be alert in it. Be sober-minded in it. Don't fall asleep in it. Keep being prayerful. With thanksgiving. Paul says at the same time, consider us. Pray also for us. Paul's in prison. Paul's doing gospel work. He's asking for a door to be opened, the first door, the prison door, and then a door to open up that he might share the gospel. At the same time, pray for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ. That is that Christ, Christ came, even though he was a Jew, he'd been prophesied by the Jews. The mystery of Christ is that Christ didn't just come for the Jews, but he came for everyone. They never would have anticipated that. That was the mystery that had been revealed is that the gospels for those from every tongue and every tribe and every nation, for Jews and Gentiles alike. Paul says, as I am proclaiming this mystery, pray for me that I'll have a door to share it, that I'll, I'll proclaim the mystery of Christ on account of which I'm in prison. Maybe this is in the latter part of his life. Uh, in the maritime prison, he could possibly be imprisoned earlier in his ministry in Ephesus. We're not exactly sure when this letter was written. But he says, pray that the doors will be opened, that I might share Christ, and I'm in prison for Christ right now, but pray that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. We all ought to have a clear way to articulate to people the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. And Paul's saying, pray that I'll have that. Verse 5. And six, as we close out, walk in wisdom toward outsiders. Make the best use of the time. Time is like the only commodity or one of the few commodities that when it's gone, you can't ever get any more of it. We just spent this last minute listening to me talk. You'll never get that minute back. So I hope it was edifying. But you never get more time. Make the best use of it. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so you may know how you ought to answer every person. Was your speech seasoned with salt and gracious this week? I can think of words I wish I had back. Time is short. I'm looking at the clock here, and I'm realizing time is short. But that's the point. It passes in short segments. We're commanded to take... You're not going to get just a bunch of big segments of time in your life. That happens when you're very young. As we get older, the the times that we have to redeem seem to be in shorter and shorter quantities. So make the best use of them. Be prayerful. Be thankful. Be ready to share Christ. Think about how you spend time. Be a gracious person. I saw a rant the other day. I'm on the Burke Burnett Rants and Raves page. I don't even know how I got on the Facebook Burke Burnett Rants and Raves page. I love seeing the raves and rants from Burke Burnett. Uh, I think actually somebody had lost a Bible in Burke Burnett, and they were from Olney, and they contacted me and put me on this page so I could try to get a Bible back to somebody. But since then, all the rants from Burke Burnett, and those people rant a lot, uh, they, they show up on my Facebook feed. And this guy the other day, he was calling somebody, he got on here to write about somebody doing their job, and he said, this person is worthless. 
This person is worthless. And I thought, hold on. I bet the person who typed that doesn't really in real life. Now, in computer life, they might say that. You think in real life they actually think someone's worthless? But think about all the careless things that we say like that. And what the Holy Spirit would have us to do is we're we're changed by this passage. It's for us to think about the words we use. This world is mean and hateful and sinful enough. And so when we're careful, it makes a difference for the gospel. There's a way that Paul's telling us here, he's asking for prayer. There's a way we can treat each person in a gracious and in a loving way. Let's not be like that. What, what if we went to that person and found out that they were a Christian in a church and we'd say, you really said somebody's worthless? When we know people are not worthless because everyone's created in the image of God. They've got worth just for that if for no other reason. Wednesday, I went back to my old school, Howard Payne. And it's been a long time since I've graduated there. Like 30 years. Or since I was a student there anyway. And talk about the idea that time is short. It's when you go back to your old school to preach at chapel, you realize how much time has passed. And uh, I looked out at those young kids, and I said, when I was sitting where you are, I was 20 years old, and, and I had 50 years ahead of me. And now I'm nearly 50 years old. And maybe I'm looking at like 20 more years to change the world. When I, was, when I was 20, I thought I had all this time. But it goes by so quickly. And we just don't make the best use of it, do we? We don't make the best use of our time. And as I drove down there, when I hit Cisco and started driving from Cisco to Rising Star to May or however that works, to get down to Brownwood, I remember driving that so many times when I was a young man. And I started thinking about these last 30 years and all the stupid things I've done and the stupid things I've thought and the ways that I've hurt people, the way that I haven't been the husband I want to be, the way I haven't been the father I want to be. And just all, I, got, I kind of got to Howard Payne in a, in a, in a state because I, I don't know why that hour-long drive had just made me think, well, I'm just a total failure. And now I've got to preach. <laughs> But I got up there and I told those kids, I said, you know what? I'm the least qualified guy to be up here. I actually told them the truth. I said, you know, when I was a student here, I failed chapel. And now I'm back preaching in it. I said, so there's hope for you. And then I stopped myself and I said, actually, there's hope for the people that are skipping right now. Because that's how you fail chapel. You just don't go to it. But there I was standing. I said, you know, I'm the least qualified guy to be up here preaching in chapel. But isn't it amazing that God can use people like us that aren't qualified? Isn't it it amazing how God can let somebody like me, who can look back and think of all these things I should have done differently, and all these regrets I have where I wish I'd have served the Lord and not been who I'd been, but I can see over all this time how God has changed me, and He's never abandoned me, and He's been patient with me, and even gets me to the point, say, Chad, go go be my ambassador down there. And what a blessing it is to be an ambassador for Jesus Christ. And it's not that we have it all together, but it's our desire. You may be discouraged. You hear the sermon, you think, gosh, Chad, I'm so glad I came to church today so you could make me feel like a terrible husband or a terrible wife or a 
bad child or a bad parent or a bad worker, just a bad Christian because I don't have a life, my speech needs to change. And maybe you feel like you don't have it all together. That's okay. The awesome thing is you can just tell the Lord that. You can tell your wife that. You can tell your kids that. Hey, guys, things are going to change. God spoke, God's word spoke to my heart today. And I'm going to try to make these verses something I live out every day. I'm going to try to live a life that makes the gospel easier to share. Will you forgive me for this or that? Will you help me going forward? So don't be discouraged today because you have work to do. Be thankful that you want to do the work. We all have work to do. So let's walk with Jesus together. Let's see him praised in the most practical parts of our lives as we live for his glory in these wonderful, mundane moments of life.